0: Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show, it's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work, and you can find out more, give them a call, johnsonsairconditioning.com is the website. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. Bob's a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Professor Andrew Joppa, uh, author of Josephus of Oz, and Patrick O'Donnell is an author, prolific author mainly about military operations and the Revolutionary War. His new book, The Indispensables, is a terrific read. I've read it, and we have an opportunity to talk to him about his book and the American Revolution. It is November the 10th and on this day in 1775 during the American Revolution. The Continental Congress passed a resolution stating that two battalions of Marines to be raised for service as landing forces for the recently formed Continental Navy The resolution, drafted by future U.S. President John Adams and adopted in Philadelphia, created the Continental Marines and is now observed as the birth date of the uh, United States Marine Corps. Happy birthday, 246 years, the Marines. Serving on land and sea, the original U.S. Marines distinguished themselves in a number of important operations during the Revolutionary War. The first Marine landed on a hostile shore occurred, When a force of Marines under Captain Samuel Nicholas captured New Providence Island in the Bahamas from the British in March of 1776, Nicholas was the first commissioned officer in the uh, Continental Marines and is celebrated as the first Marine Commandant. After American independence was achieved in 1783, the Continental Navy was demobilized and its Marines disbanded. In the next decade, however, increasing conflict at sea with Revolutionary France led the U.S. Congress to establish formally the U.S. Navy in May of 1798. Two months later, on July the 11th, President John Adams signed the bill establishing the U.S. Marine Corps as a permanent military force under the jurisdiction of the Department of Navy. U.S. Marines saw action in the so-called Quasi War with France and then fought against the Barbary Pirates of North uh, Africa during the first years of the 19th century. Millions for defense, but not one farthing uh, for for uh, paying the pirates. Since then, Marines have participated in all the wars in the United States, in most cases, the first soldiers to fight. In all, Marines have executed more than 300 landings on foreign shores. Today, there are more than 200,000 active duty and reserve Marines divided into four divisions stationed at the Camp Lejeune, uh, Camp Pendleton, Uh, and uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Okinawa, Japan. Each division has one or more expeditionary units ready to launch major operations any world in the war with two weeks' notice. Marines' expeditionary units are self-sufficient with their own tanks, artillery, and air forces. The motto of the service is Semper Fidelis, meaning always faithful in Latin. Happy birthday, Marines. Former uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, not former. (laughs) Uh, officially announced he's running for re-election on Monday After days after a report indicated the Democrat Governors Association does not have a plan to give financial support to Florida Democrats looking to take on Republican Governor. That's good news. DeSantis, who filed paperwork to run for a second term in 2022 on Friday, said during a press conference on Monday that a more formal kickoff to his re-election campaign will take place after the special election. He said he's delivered on all fronts during his first term, and he's only just begun to fight. Florida's economy is strong. We've boosted teachers' pay, made historic investments in the Everglades restoration and water quality, signed strong election integrity legislation, provided unparalleled support for law enforcement, and appointed strong constitutionalists to our state courts, he said. And certainly that's all true. I've also protected individual Floridians and small businesses by keeping Florida open and soon up for. up for students and parents by ensuring schools provided in-person instruction and by championing the rights of parents. He continued, "We've also taken on big tech censorship, banned sanctuary cities, ensured that municipalities can defund cannot defund law enforcement, and stood up to the Biden regime." He said, "Last month, the Sanders shot down speculation he'd run for president. I'm not considering anything beyond doing my job." He said, "We've got a lot of stuff going on in Florida. I'm going to be running for re-election next year." And we're going to also be working on a lot of things in the state beyond just the governor's race, he said. Good news for Floridians. He's kind of our firewall against Joe Biden and the uh, Democrat administration right now running the federal government. This is pretty pertinent from uh, Bytebart News Desk. They say, we may have jumped the gun when we predicted that Bidenflation would ruin Christmas because it looks like before that will happen, inflation is going to ruin Thanksgiving, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, turkey prices are up around 41% compared to a year ago, the biggest annual gain since 1988. A slight bit of that year-over-year gain can be chalked up to high employment and pandemic-induced social distancing, driving prices down last year by around 4%. But compared with October of 2019, prices are have soared 36%. Food prices overall are up about 10.5% compared with last year. You know, if you don't believe it, just ask my wife, Linda. I peer down the supply chain, it's easy to see what's going on. Poultry feed prices are up 25%, and we're running as high as 41% this summer compared to a year ago. Grain prices overall are up 40%. The price of warehousing and storing farm products is up 5%. And then, of course, there's shipping. Trucking prices are up more than 20% year-over-year, according to the Producer Price Index. Prices of truck trailers are up by 19.7%. Gasoline prices, of course, you know this, they're nearly up 90%. Uh, President Biden spoke about the CEOs of Walmart, Target, UPS, and FedEx on Tuesday to discuss steps that the administration and private sector can take to further strengthen our supply chains and build on steps we've already taken to speed up deliveries and low prices. Unfortunately, any progress will not arrive in time for Thanksgiving. So if you're seeing uh, higher prices in the store, you're not alone. Everybody is. And uh, Thanksgiving should be a little bit more expensive. Not just a little bit. 13 House Republicans, along with 19 Senate Republicans, are helping shift infrastructure projects away from their own districts and towards blue Democrat districts where they voted to support President Joe Biden's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. The bill includes the Digital Equity Act that expands broadband to American communities that currently lack access to the Internet due either poverty, dilapidated infrastructure, or their geopolitical or physical location, such as rural communities. Uh, Though, as Breitbart News reported, the broadband expansion will be partially based on how many non-white residents and newly arrived immigrants a particular community has. Communities with large foreign-born populations that are a majority minority will be the first in line for expansion. In effect, the less white an area is, the more uh, immigrants who reside there, the quicker that community is to secure broadband expansion. Because Democrats uh, tend to represent these communities, Republicans' vote for the bill serve to penalize their constituents for their region's democratic demographic makeup. Meanwhile, twenty of the thirty most Majority-minority congressional districts, all of which stand to benefit from most of the bill's broadband expansion via racial and immigration quotas, are represented by Democrats across Texas, California, Florida, Illinois, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, South Carolina, Michigan, and New York. So congratulations, guys, you're great negotiators, you Republicans that uh, signed on with this bipartisan bill. You actually didn't serve your constituents very well, did you? Well, President Joe Biden brushed off his lagging poll numbers during an interview Monday with Cincinnati, Ohio TV station, saying he did not run the companies for the country's top office because of the polls. The Suffolk University poll taken Wednesday through Friday saw Biden's approval rating drop to a new low of 38% just one year before the 2022 midterm elections. At least 58% of Americans also believe Biden hasn't paid enough attention to the most important problems in the U.S., that according to a CNN poll. Kyle Inskeep of Cincinnati's WKRC-TV asked Biden whether he needed to recalibrate some of his administration's priorities. Well, look, the poll I saw just before I walked on in another station was polling my numbers are down. But it's 48 to 52 percent, Biden said. But look, the point is, I didn't run because of the polls. In other words, that means to me, I don't care what people think. (laughs) Biden contended his previous recovery efforts and current legislation, his Build Back Better plan would have a significant impact on ordinary Americans like the households I came from. He doesn't describe what kind of an impact that would be, which I predict would be pretty negative. He also said his polling numbers were essentially the same compared to those of other former presidents during their time in office, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. He then suggested people have anxiety due to the coronavirus and surging gas prices. I don't think presidents should be deciding what to do about, look, a lot of people are worried. Think about this. Look what what 750,000 have died because of COVID, the psychological scars that has put on so many people. Schools have not been opened because of COVID, Biden said. We're in a situation where there's a lot, a lot of anxiety. Gas prices are up exceedingly high. That's why I have the Attorney General taking a look at whether or not these gas companies are gouging people. (laughs) He's the President of the United States. Do something about it, Joe. You can do something. Uh, Certainly not uh, just downplay the importance of polls and uh, the feelings and thoughts of the American people. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com on the web. Also, Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music. And a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly wait has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulubees offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulubees Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at Lulubees.com and stop by Lulubees Diner open from eight a a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulaby's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool, rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambos says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. The Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, Director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect to That's callyourseniorresources.org, or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome
0: back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more and download the app from the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andy Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author also. He's a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
3: We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and focused on free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web.
1: Thank you, Bob. So uh, let's change our conversation to discrimination. Uh, We've got some anti-discrimination laws, but also I think uh, libertarians, which I think pretty much makes up the uh, the makeup of the Cato Institute, Uh, protect the right to discriminate. So, uh, for starters, tell us about the sex discrimination case recently decided by the Supreme Court.
3: Yeah, these were actually two separate cases that were consolidated. Interesting cases. One was up in New York and the other was in Georgia. And the two cases split in the lower courts on the question whether Title VII, which is part of the Civil Rights Act that bars discrimination in employment, Does Title VII, which bars discrimination by sex, does that term sex extend to sexual orientation, the LGBT community, and sexual identity, the transgender community? Mm. So Congress in the past had considered adding sexual orientation to the act, and Congress rejected that. And of course, some of the conservatives said The court's role should be to give effect to the text that's actually enacted, which says sex and not sexual orientation. And when Congress wanted to say sexual orientation, it knew how to do that. It put it in the Violence Against Women Act. It put it in the Hate Crimes Act, but it did not put it in Title VII. Mm. So everybody expected a conservative win, especially after Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy, And Kennedy had been a strong advocate uh, for what he called gender equality. So that was the expectation.
1: So, how did the case turn out?
3: Not as expected. Uh, 6 3, Corsic wrote the opinion, and he was joined by the liberals plus Roberts. Wow. And what he said was that the text says sex, but sex can be expanded to cover gays their preference, and transgender, despite the legislative intent. That is, it was clear Congress didn't intend that. And despite the history, there had not been any campaign to um, eliminate discrimination against the gay community. So there were three really underlying issues. Uh, First, should employers discriminate based on sexual orientation? You know, this is a moral question. And my, my answer to it is no, they shouldn't, unless there's a bona fide occupational qualification that says we really have to have a, a, a heterosexual in this position. Uh-huh. The second question is whether it's the government's job to compel non-discrimination. And again, libertarians, I think, would say no, it's not. Private actors should make their own decisions in that regard, and markets actually penalize bigotry because you lose customers and you lose the good and boys. But the third question is, what did the status a question that the court addressed and the conservatives split on how to interpret the text, indicating that just because you say you're a textualist doesn't mean you're always going to come down on the same side of how to construe the text of the document.
1: Yeah, it sounds like judicial activism to me in some ways.
3: Yeah, a little bit. Of course, it <clears throat> took a lot of heat from some of the conservatives for expanding the term sex to cover sexual orientation.
1: So let's get back to the basics then. Should there be a a right to gay marriage?
3: Well, I think Jefferson set the stage in the Declaration. He said the securities rights governments are instituted among men. so the primary purpose of government is to safeguard individual rights Mm -hmm. and prevent some persons from harming other people. And nobody is harmed uh, by the union of two consenting. Gay people, and that to me is the threshold question: whose rights have been violated and has to have to be secured by government action? My answer is: nobody's rights have been violated except the rights of gay people who are denied, if they're denied, the right to marry. And even if it could be shown uh, that heterosexual marriages are vital for child rearing, that fact would have constitutional significance only if you could also show that by allowing gay marriages, you somehow preclude or reduce or discourage heterosexual marriages. And obviously, that's not the case. Nobody is foreclosed from marrying a woman or vice versa, simply because uh, gay couples can also marry. And as we've said before in, in talking about this, for most of Western history, the marriage was a private contract. Government was out of the picture, and frankly, there's no reason that couldn't. Uh, couldn't continue. You uh, you have your in religious or secular institutions, they would recognize gay marriages or not recognize gay marriages or call them something different, and you join whatever group you want. Right. And the rights and responsibilities of the partners would be governed by these personally tailored uh, contracts, just like we do with most other interactions in a free society.
1: So didn't the government kind of stick its nose in the, in the marriage business but with the Internal Revenue Service and some of the laws that have passed? Doesn't government have to define marriage for purposes of various laws that grant yeah, benefits? Regrettably,
3: the government has uh, interceded, and there's more than a thousand federal laws dealing with things like taxes and transfer payments, and then there's all these state laws dealing with child custody and inheritance and rights. But I think the principle is whenever the government starts imposing obligations or dispensing benefits, uh, the the Constitution says that the government can't deny anybody equal protection of the laws. So we know that government discriminates among its citizens uh, all the time. And early on, we prohibited whites from marrying blacks. Until 1954, we actually (coughs) had segregated schools. But thankfully, uh, the court stepped in and invalidated uh, those uh, two uh, uh, bad policies, and now, thanks to the court, uh, federal and state legislators can no longer impose these kinds of morally abhorrent and, I think, constitutionally invalid uh, marriage uh, limitations.
1: Yeah, so so what's the alternative to government-issued marriage, marriage licenses?
3: Well, you could have uh, other objective criteria to trigger marriage and leave the definition in the hands of private institutions. So even before the Supreme Court's uh, legalization of gay marriage, the uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee, for example, had voted to extend employees' uh, benefits if they were same-sex partners. And the qualifying criteria, and this could have applied much more broadly, uh, you come up with an affidavit, you identify your partner, you certify that the partnership was intended to be exclusive and permanent, that you have a common residence, you have shared responsibilities. And even a lot of private sector employers had increasingly offered uh, same-sex marital benefits even before uh, the court stepped in. And according to OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, uh, nearly 60% of Fortune 500 companies had already conferred employment benefits on domestic partners. So, you know, it wasn't necessary to key be those benefits to uh, to marriage.
1: Yeah, such an interesting conversation, Bob. I'd love to pick this up next week. Again, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. The website is cato, C-A-T-O dot org. Always appreciate your commentary here in the, on the show, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you so much. All right, coming up, Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. That and more right here in The Bob Harden Show on The Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: to the Bob Harden Show, and now here's your host,
1: Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. You can get tickets now by visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Patrick O'Donnell. He's the author of The Indispensables. Right now, we have another author, Andrew Jaffa. He's a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. And hey, uh, you're log inside the mind of a Democrat progressive. I thought it was really interesting. I, in fact, I posted it under the uh, pull down tab. Correct me if I'm wrong this morning. Uh, maybe you can tell us about it.
4: Well, yeah, we're going to start with my blog today. Normally, as I as I mentioned, normally I get to that at the end if there's time. But I think there's some theses, some concepts. I, I don't even know the plural of these. and in that, by the way, uh, that are worth discussing. But let me talk about uh, Veterans Day first. My my grandfather, which is tomorrow, my grandfather was in the uh, the Navy in World War One. My father in the Army and. World War II, a Silver Star, two Purple Hearts, and I—I I was in Vietnam, and thank goodness my my son never had to go to war. Uh, although for those that survive, it, it tends for most of us to have been the most meaningful experience of our lives, and and built the nature of who we became as as full adults post that moment. So. Um, I honor the veterans. I honor mostly, of course, those that paid the ultimate price. but uh, you know i I really think the nation has to stop and pause and and ask exactly what these veterans were risking their life for. Was it the type of things we're seeing in America today the uh, the suppression of 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 law, the uh, the uh, attacks on individuals because of their race? It's just uh, it's an outrageous phenomenon. And I, I sh- obviously sincerely believe that most of these veterans were not putting their lives on, on the line for that phenomenon. But, uh, you know, that that was just my quick views on, on Veterans Day. The most important thing, obviously, is to honor honor those veterans. Um, we have some good news today, Bob, and it becomes increasingly difficult to find it. But I think there is good news today. Uh, Florida's uh, uh infestation rate with covid is now one half the case rate of california now the important thing about that i think is that it's been suggested by medical authorities without using these words that florida has picked up a herd immunity uh, how did that work i guess is the is the appropriate question uh, by florida just protecting the seriously vulnerable and allowing the disease to take its normal course with most of the cases being uh, very or low symptomatic or even asymptomatic, it's produced a, a herd immunity in Florida that at this point makes us as a state very resistive uh, to any meaningful uh, increased levels of, of COVID uh, infection. Uh, this is the same thing that happened in Sweden. Sweden took normal precautions to protect the vulnerable, but did nothing other than that, similar to Florida, and their situation is exactly the same. Hmm. Now, with this information, you would think this would uh, draw a focus into that kind of process, but it, it hasn't done that. We still are plunging ahead, of course, with the uh, the vaccine mandates. Thank goodness the courts are beginning to push back a little bit on that, uh, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's always been my prediction that this uh, this COVID um, extreme reaction will go on through the 2022 elections. But in the short term, it's good news that Florida's rate is one half of that of California, and it's uh, probably due to herd immunity. The other piece of good news, and then I'll stop talking and, and get your comments, Bob, is the Durham report has uh, brought in an indictment against uh, Igor Danchenko, which absolutely squashes the the possibility of anything but a hoax being associated with the Steele dossier. Right. Uh, so, but of course, the media is not talking about that. They're just ignoring that obvious type of process. They're still going on with the uh, the Russian collusion hoax. That that's probably never going to end. Uh, also, in the uh, earlier Sussman indictment from uh, September, uh, Jake Sullivan, the current. Uh, National Security Advisor for uh, for uh, President Biden uh, has been not in, uh, implicated in that, but his name has been brought up as a recipient of information during that process. So it's starting to push into the Clinton campaign. It's starting to push into the Biden White House as to whether or not Durham will uh, push it into uh, those uh, those areas uh, with, with indictments, subsequent indictments, or other. Uh, further, uh, further investigations. I don't know, but I think uh, Doran is is beginning uh, to show some teeth, and uh, hopefully that will uh, make the his findings so un- undeniable yeah. that even the mainstream media will have to start. Uh, publicizing what is the obvious truth, Bob.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that he's beginning to get teeth. I think, quite frankly, he has de- demonstrated tremendous secrecy and independence during this entire process. And, of course, the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind fine. He seems a very capable man, and I think right now we're beginning to see the evidence of his research, and I understand there's going to be a lot more indictments.
4: That That is exactly what I've been reading, and I think that's, uh, that's good news. This is right. all... Uh, obviously necessary if america is going to escape from this process of of, of hoaxes being created to damage uh, not only individuals but america itself i think that type of thing has to happen and right now durham is is perhaps the only source of that potential bob you're right
1: i think that's i think that's absolutely true so uh, tell us about your trip of uh, being inside the mind of a democrat progressive
4: well uh let me just start with, again, the basic thesis. My basic thesis in that essay, Bob, was that 2021 and 2022 are the years that the uh, the progressives have absolutely dedicated uh, to uh, fulfilling their agenda. I was just reading in a, in a comparable essay this morning where they said, there is an unhidden willingness on the part of Democrat leadership to sacrifice their pawns for the sake of advancing their broader agenda. Uh, that to a, to a large extent is my thesis uh-huh. that because of their commitment uh, to doing what they believe they must do within their agenda in 2021 and 2022, I believe they know they're putting at risk the House in the 2022 midterm elections. Right. Uh, I don't think they obviously want to lose the House, but I think they're willing to take that risk uh, as the price to be paid for the accomplishing of their uh, of their agenda. And I think we're seeing that right now. Uh, if we look at the post-Yunkin uh, victory, you would you would think that the uh, left would have learned something and be a little bit contrite uh, post that Yunkin victory, but they're not. Uh, they, they don't seem to learn anything. They don't seem to go in new directions. And I believe the reason is, is because they are absolutely committed to fulfilling everything they can in terms of what I would describe as damaging America. In 2021 and 2022. Now, I do believe that the uh, the Democrats are focusing on the Senate. They don't want to lose both the House and the Senate. They will willingly almost sacrifice the House, but I believe the Senate at 50-50 right now. I think they believe they can hold the Senate and certainly have a good chance of increasing the uh, the, the seats, perhaps up to 52 to 48, hmm. uh, if they hold the Senate and the presidency. Uh, certainly that will uh, interfere with their agenda in 2023 and 2024, but most of the damage would have been done, and if they hold the Senate, they'll be able to control the courts. If they control just the presidency, Bob, they'll be able to shut down any uh, new attempts by a uh, Republican full House and Senate uh, even if they attempt to do so by uh, by the veto power of the president, so that's my essential thesis. And I think it's uh, one that can be well documented by their actions and by their absolute refusal to back down under the most uh, scurrilous of of, of uh, identifications of their agenda. Uh, and yet they go forward without any, without any change in the process. Bob.
1: Yeah, I mean earlier in in the show, I I talked a little about the poll numbers and what Biden's comments were, and he said, yeah, the polls are down, but my goodness, I mean we're going to implement this uh, build back better uh, uh, agenda. And he's he's already selling the next step in spite of what the the polls are saying right now. People don't like what they're seeing. And he said, yeah, but you're going to like what you're really going to like what you you see. We're all done with this. And, of course, we won't. We won't like it at all. But uh, they will will have radicalized and uh, revolutionized the United States of America into a socialist country.
4: Bob, if, if I can be really cynical, which I'm prone to do on occasion, I believe the Democrats could care less about the polls and, the, right. and in the larger sense, the American voter. Right. Uh, as I indicated before, I think they are willing to sacrifice the House. They don't want to, but they will accept that. Uh, I think that if we look at who they are, and that's part of my essay. We look at their, uh, their lies, their distortions, their corruptions. If anybody thinks the Democrats are going to allow the 2022 Senate elections uh, to unfold in a perfectly legal format, uh, and I know those are words that America is suppressing right now, but I believe the Democrats will not allow the Senate uh, to go into the hands of the Republicans, and I think that 's where their focus will be and so if it g- gets back to your point, I think they 're totally ignoring the polls and in this sense ignoring the American voter. Uh, they believe they can get everything done or stop anything from being done to stop them uh, up through two thousand and twenty four and they believe if it goes that far that what harm they 've done is absolutely irreparable
1: I think you 're absolutely right in fact, yet you know uh, that their loyalty is not to the American people. They don't care about the polls. What they do care is about the, their ideology, implementing their ideology, and going on to the this uh, future that they have planned for us. That uh, quite frankly, in every case in the in, in history, has failed. And uh, you know they're saying, "Well, we are going to try one more time."
4: Well, it's it's disturbing uh, to to see the um, the surety that I hear so often from. Uh, Conservative commentators, in terms of, you know, we're going to uh, win back the House and the Senate in 2022 and everything is going to be fine. Uh, To presume that the Democrats are going to uh, somehow just sit back and pray that that all happens without getting their hands into the mix uh, is, is just, I think, very, very naive, Bob. So, Uh, Yeah, and I think they are trying to fulfill uh, uh, policies that have uh, failed almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think it it goes beyond that. This is an American experience, although it has certainly Marxist connotations and and, and, uh, global connotations in their origin. I think what we're talking about is an American experience, a deep-rooted hatred of what this country has been, the values it has has, uh, defended, and I think they are seriously... Uh, going after the the basic history and the value system of America, and of course its culture as the way of accomplishing that. Problem.
1: I think you're absolutely right. And uh, you you listen to people, you read the the uh, letters to the editor in the in the Naples Daily News, for example. You say, oh, "We're living in, in alternative uh, universes here. What's how can people make the comments they make? Uh, obviously, they just have a dif- different different uh, prelude, a different." Uh, uh, assumptions going into the discussion about what america should be all about
4: and, and they they don't care about the the reaction to these things i just uh, heard the other day perhaps yesterday where uh, Pete people judge was being asked by a reporter as to the racist connotation of the roads in america yeah. and he immediately had an answer available which means the question was primed before the fact sure uh, and but you know that type of absurdity is just is so willingly distributed uh... Uh, the talks of uh, making the uh, the fossil fuel companies uh, go into bankruptcy as part of the administration's uh, apparent agenda as it goes forward. Uh, absolutely absurd policies that they know we're going to be uh, receiving tremendous pushback. But again, to get back to my point and, and yours actually, Bob, at this point, is that they don't care. No,
1: they, they just
4: don't care. They're going to go forward what they think uh, is is their agenda, and they're going to get that done and they'll pay the price no matter what it is at this point, Bob.
1: So you uh, sent me a note before the show about the whole concept of thresholds. I don't know if it's appropriate to bring it up at now. What do you think?
4: Well, let me just briefly allude to it. I, I want to develop this more, but a threshold uh, basically is a point at which action can be taken. Uh, that's a simple definition. And I, I was considering writing on this, and I will, is what is the the threshold right now for the reaction uh, to COVID? Uh for example, for the government to go outside of constitutional authority, which is certainly what mandated vaccinations would be, there would have to be an extremely high threshold, a level reached where it demands action. There is no thing, not nothing of that sort that exists right now. Right. Uh, actually, there's been a, a general decrease in the, uh, in the cases. There is no documentation at OSHA's level. Uh, that the work, uh, the workplace is uh, is in any danger uh, from uh, from COVID-19 dissemination, and yet they go forward with it. There is no threshold that has been reached that would author, authorize the government to reach outside of constitutional authority, but they are doing that. Uh, so the the concept of threshold has has more implication, which I'll develop as an example. Uh, can America be called a racist nation? Has the threshold been reached, Bob, where the incident of, of race, racism is so profound that the nation itself can be defined as racist? And I can clearly document, uh, and I will, uh, that certainly that threshold has not been reached. So I'm going to go through a whole series of thresholds that, that should be reached if, we're, if action is going to be taken by the government. And yet, in almost every case, the threshold has not been reached, Bob.
1: Your uh, concept of threshold reminded me of Malcolm Gladwell's book about uh, called The Tipping Point, and it just made me think about, hey, you well, know, once we reach a tipping point, uh, then things gain their popularity and gain their, their influence in society, but this is a different concept, isn't it?
4: But, but it's similar to a tipping point uh, in in the sense that at what point does the government, as I, I'm going to redundant, at what point does the government gain the right to act or perhaps more profoundly the necessity to act? Yeah. Uh, and certainly there is no necessity that exists uh, as it pertains to COVID-19 at this point. Uh, right now we're looking at the... Uh, the very weak extended impact of the vaccines. The the boosters are being promoted and they will be demanded just as the, the first two shots were, uh, were required in many areas. I think the boosters are going to be, are going to be demanded. We're looking at this, uh, heinous process. That's, uh, Impact on, let's specifically let's say Aaron Rodgers uh, for his uh, you know, refusal to uh, to be vaccinated. And of course, they wove in the fact that he apparently lied about it. But that that isn't what the issue is. The issue is uh, his uh, belief that he has the right uh, to resist this as a, uh, a person in perfect physical condition, and he is no threat to anyone, uh, including himself.
1: Uh, that's absolutely true. And this this whole thing has been fabricated. It's, uh, you know, the unfortunate thing is the CDC. The Federal uh, Drug Administration. So many departments have been weaponized and devoted themselves now to the agenda of the uh, of the Biden administration and this whole notion of uh, changing the government around. And the uh, the victims of this whole process are the American people.
4: Well, there's no doubt, and we, you know, I think you you've uh, the phrase "weaponized" is certainly a valid one as we look at what's happening in the uh, Attorney General's office, uh, the. Uh, uh, Defining of uh, complaining parents as being uh, uh, a threat and being uh, terrorists in their own way. If we look at recently the, uh, the absurd raid on, uh, on uh, James O'Keefe's home um, because of apparently that uh, searching for uh, Ashley Biden's diary. Let me just, you know, this is not being giving a lot of publicity, but uh, that diary is apparently valid. She has identified it as being her diary. Uh, and in it, there is a remark made that says she got, was sexually molested as a child and took inappropriate showers with her father. Now, I, I don't like to just throw out stuff like that. I'm not. Uh, that's not my style. Right. But I think in this case, we have to look at this being suppressed, this diary being suppressed by the actions of the FBI. And I think that is a, uh, a very frightening thing to watch the FBI being weaponized. If we look at the uh, the way the Justice Department is reacting to the January sixth uh, people, the, those that were uh, imprisoned, and many of many have uh, made confessed confessions, how how did that pleading of guilty occur, Bob? Uh, they pled guilty because they were threatened with extended jail term of of 20 years, and in some cases even more, if they didn't plead guilty to a lesser charge. And so, again, how the federal government has extracted these uh, these pleas of guilty has been by absurd uh, hyperbolic extensions of potential penalty and forcing them, in fact, by the, by the threat, into confessions that were totally inappropriate.
1: Yeah, well, I think those are just great examples right now of what we're seeing and uh, how uh, we have a dual system of justice right now. The, the Justice Department, or the FBI, CIA, they pick and choose what's important and what supports the agenda as opposed to what brings justice to all. Justice should be blind. The Lady of Justice is uh, blindfolded. But that's not the justice we're seeing right now. It? No, it's
4: not. And for those getting back to that concept of say those who think that uh, everything is going to be fine after 2022, uh, if you look at that federal bureaucracy that is corrupted, I don't think it's just at the top, Bob. <clears throat> I think the FBI is, is corrupted at any level of managerial leadership. I think it, is, it, goes, it goes that deep. I think that's true of NSA, CIA. I think it's true of the entire federal bureaucracy and and look the the democrat left knows this bob so they know they know that those areas those bureaucracies will always have their back no matter what happens bob so it's a it's a very dangerous situation for america uh obviously i and and no one act actually at this point uh, has an answer to these uh certainly the republican party is not giving the what i would regard as the appropriate pushback there's almost no noise coming from the uh, larger republican party as it pertains to uh, to the um, January 6th issue. They're allowing Pelosi to have their will uh, with them. There, there's just no pushback on the, uh, the carbonization debate that came out of Glasgow. Uh, you know, just one slight fact that seems to be uh, pertinent as it pertains to uh, climate change. Uh, in the last 150 years, there's been a 40% increase in the atmospheric uh, content of carbon dioxide. Now, that sounds like a significant number, but if we look at the Earth's population yeah. in that same 150 years, it increased by 500%. Yeah. So we have a 500% increase in the human population, and the utilization of fossil fuels has grown a proportionately. There's been essentially a minimal increase uh, in, in, in carbon dioxide. So, uh, but there are many other facts that could be thrown that would absolutely get in the way of the more outrageous claims uh, being taken at Glasgow. Uh, and, in general, by the uh, the climate change movement.
1: Absolutely. Andrew Jop again, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Terrific read. Off topic for today's discussion. But, Andy, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, it. Thank you so much, Andy. All right, coming up, Patrick O'Donnell, author of The Indispensables. That and more right here in The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain
0: back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Patrick O'Donnell. Patrick O'Donnell is the author of 12 books, including The Unknowns and Washington's Immortals. His latest is a terrific read. I read it myself and really appreciated The Indispensables. It's called The Diverse Soldier Mariners Who Shaped the Country, Formed the Navy, and Rode Washington Across the Delaware. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us.
2: It's great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you, Patrick. So who are The Indispensables?
2: The indispensables are the the men and, to so a smaller degree, the women of Marblehead, Massachusetts, that are the spearhead of the American Revolution, at least the early American Revolution. And then they form the greatest, one, arguably one of the greatest fighting regiments in American history that changed the course of the Revolutionary War multiple times uh, through their human agency and personal you know, personal efforts. They save Washington's army um, on multiple occasions. Uh, First, at the Battle of Brooklyn, where they row the the army at at the American Dunkirk uh, across the East River and save it from a destruction and annihilation, literally save the Revolutionary War. Yeah. And they do it again uh, at the Battle of Trenton. They row Washington across the uh, Delaware River, where all of their efforts uh, in Washington's army failed for the men that were in, uh, they were crewing the boats, the, the Marvel headers that were crewing the, the boats that brought Washington across.
1: You know, I, I, I have to comment that I've uh, always appreciated uh, the, the history of the Revolutionary War, but it's been an intellectual or abstract intellectual concept. You brought the Revolutionary War to life. To me, it was just an incredible read to uh, understand What's going on with these battles? What's going on with Washington? The uh, unbelievable odds. I mean not everybody in the United States or it, at the time in the colonies was loyal to necessarily the, the cause of the uh, Revolutionary Army. In fact, there are many people who wanted to see them fail. So it was an incredible feat that these po- people pulled off and it was so unusual that so many of the people that participated that of great importance were from Marble, uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts. Why is that?
2: You know, I think that that's a really important point that you bring out, Bob. I mean, people think that the Revolutionary War is just this preordained event that you know was inevitable that yeah. we we're going to defeat the greatest empire of the world of the time, and that um, you know that had never have never lost an insurrection. They always defeated any any uh, any group of people that that came, that came up against them. That's certainly not the case. This is about you know, we, you think we have a divided country now. Well, you look back at the Revolutionary War; it was deeply divided. Yeah, uh, people did not believe in the cause, and what you see is people jumping uh, sides based on the the ebb and flow of battles. Uh, in many ways, and also, you had a country that was racked with hyperinflation. It was a very very tough time that makes us the nation that we are. Um, but it, it you know it flows from. A set of ideas and principles that change the world—freedom and liberty in um, you know, so much of our character is born in this Revolutionary War. And, and these men, and to some degree the women of uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts, make that that incredible change. Uh, mm. They affect the revolution through their human agency. Uh, in, in the beginning, it's it's a lot of the ideas that flow from the revolution of freedom and liberty. My main character in this book is Elbridge Gerry. People know that name from so-called gerrymandering. The reality is, this is a guy that was a thought leader, or one of the great founders. Mm-hmm. That's an unknown founder of the revolution on freedom and liberty. Yeah, they also were the financiers of the war. They bring in the gunpowder, which is the the most crucial supply uh, in you know pre-revolutionary America because it doesn't exist. Without gunpowder, without ammo, guns are useless, and the British knew that, and they actively tried to disarm us. And all of the early operations you know, culminating with Lexington and Concord involve, in many cases, marblehead gunpowder that is brought in from Spain. Our first foreign aid comes from Spain yeah. in terms of weapons and gunpowder in 1774.
1: But, you know, I have to say that, uh, at times, uh, it seemed like there was divine intervention in what was going on. Fog would show up to protect the troops and protect uh, going across the river uh, at, at times. It was just unbelievable the things that occurred that were really up to nature, that, uh, for which these people had no control whatsoever that helped us facilitate the victory of the, uh, of the American Revolution.
2: Absolutely. The hand of God is very evident. Uh, in many ways, and it, it, in the, it's very evident in the way that weather plays a key role at uh, crucial situations Yeah, uh, over and over. Uh, and, you know, the first case that's very obvious is the, the American Dunkirk, and it's, you know, I'll give this setting to the listeners, it's, it's August 1776, the Battle of Brooklyn was raging, and You know, it's a a catastrophic defeat for the Americans. It's a situation where all could have been lost. Had the British Army pressed further, uh, they may have destroyed us. And, um, you know, Washington had decision. He was trapped in his fortifications at Brooklyn Heights. He decided to evacuate, you know, wisely. But that is practically uh, mission impossible to somehow cross this raging East River, which is a mile long. It's currently the site of the uh, uh, of, of of the Brooklyn Bridge, and they have all these small, tiny boats. Yeah. And they literally are the Marbleheaders are given two hours to plan this massive evacuation, one of the greatest in history.
1: It was just on, um, just incredible indeed. And they
2: do it, and then getting to the point that you're making it's a race against time uh and they it's a, it's a race against dawn in the prying eyes of the British Army, which is about to pounce on them and it at that moment, a fog comes in yeah, the hand of God in in, in screens the movement of those boats as they complete the crossing. It's incredible
1: yeah it, it, and it,
2: it saves the army, it saves Washington. Uh, and it's not once that this happens; it's multiple times. It's a battle of Trent, and there's a nor'easter that screens the movement of the of the army as they cross. It's, it's incredible stuff. Incredible, and people. You know, should be proud of their history because there's a lot to be proud of here.
1: Uh, But that point needs to be made. We have so much to be proud of and so much to be grateful for because of the actions of these people. And and you know what? uh, The government didn't have any money. They couldn't pay the troops. Many times they were operating without any kind of pay whatsoever. They weren't properly clothed for the weather. And they had an outbreak of smallpox during the war.
2: Yes. I think this is one of the most extraordinary things that I, I found. You know, we were dealing with we were dealing with um, fellow Americans that didn't believe in the cause. You're dealing with the greatest army in the world of the time, the greatest Navy, and then throw in the midst of all of that, a massive raging pandemic yeah. that divides Americans uh, politically. And it's used as a wedge too. Yeah. Um, and that's a credi- That's an incredible story in and of itself that I bring out in the Indispensables How in 1773-74, Marblehead's this great trading power. They're bringing in goods from all over the world, but along with those goods, they bring in the silent killer, a virus, smallpox. And it divides the town along political lines between the loyalists in the town and the patriots. And that's an amazing story. We have, in that book, one of my favorite scenes is a get-off-your-lawn kind of moment where my, my main character, John Glover, has his house surrounded by an enraged mob that the loyalists had, had fomented, and the house is completely surrounded. He realizes that they're going to do something that night, so he wheels a cannon into the foyer of his home and waits for the mob to show up and orders the front door um, thrown open and he has a lighted torch in his hand next to that cannon and he huh. tells the, men, the mob to disperse which they do it's kind of an, a really emblematic moment of the resilience of many of these characters
1: the Indispensables by Patrick K. O'Donnell, and I encourage you, as I've mentioned several times on the show, it's a great read. It will bring the Revolutionary War alive for you, as it did for me. Again, The Indispensables by Patrick K. O'Donnell. Patrick, I just genuinely—I wish we had more time. I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: It's a great. It's been a pleasure. Please. Uh, Bob, we'll stay in touch, and I'd be happy to come back on, uh, you know, around Christmas or whenever.
1: All right, I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. All right, well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I had fun, a great great time. Learned a lot. I hope you join us tomorrow. We have great guests lined up as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are, Namaste.